0: Hello and welcome to The Grand Thunk, the podcast in which we, Alex Blanchard and Rihanna Kearns, discuss what we've been reading, watching and listening to. A fairly simple premise. Welcome. Hello, welcome back. we begin we have transcripts in our bio on instagram at the grand thunk feel free to subscribe share throw us a review tell your friends we're releasing new episodes every monday i'm gonna start with a very serious rectification of my falsehoods that i was spewing out last episode
1: oh gosh don't start doing that (laughs) i'll have a lot of things i've
0: got to go back on if we start doing that i i mentioned the story about the arsenic green oh, but I yes. had mixed up two stories one of which was in the 1920s watch hands were painted with radium to make them glow in the dark um, which led to a lot of deaths but also then there was the color Paris green or emerald green during the Victorian era which was made with arsenic and it was used to make clothes and wallpaper and was very popular. And that also led to a lot of deaths from people that were making it and people that were wearing it. So and it did turn you green. So those are my two fun stories about green. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's cheery. the best way to remember historical facts. Just take two stories you like from different points in history. <laughs> merge
1: them together. No one will know. It's fine. <laughs> also do it with um, with sayings. Put a half of each saying together to make an incorrect saying that makes no sense. Yeah,
0: totally. I've got another treat for you. This is from This Way Up, which Rhiannon recommended last week. Go off. If you're ready. <laughs> okay. Go on. Sing a song.
1: Oh no, no Mummy. No.
0: Singing. The one about the ghost. Oh, it's not, not about the ghost, Mummy. <laughs> Sing it. No. No. Hey, you see, it's not me. It's
1: not oh. my family. In your head, in your head. Oh my God. They are fighting oh with their tongues uh. and their favorite bit coming up now.
0: oh it's just the tv moment of the decade for me it's the best thing i've ever seen so good it's just those like notes underneath of <laughs> and
1: the, eh, eh, at the end i can't even begin to impersonate it it's it's uncannily good like it's so perfect and it just and the fact that the whole thing opens with her saying the line oh, the one about the ghosts
0: <laughs> and it's same. I love it so much. So funny. I watched it and just was dying, just like honestly, just on the floor crying. And I sent her the clip of the oh 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 oh. Oh,
1: Oh, it's just so funny. honestly, I'll never listen to that song again in the same way. No, I know. It's
0: like one of my favorite songs is now totally ruined because all I'm going to (laughs) be. Or is it ruined, or is it just like made better? Yeah. You can enjoy it in a completely different way now, which is always fun. <laughs> no, thank you so much for that recommendation. I really enjoyed the show. Oh, good. I wasn't sure. I watched the first episode and I was like, oh, is this a bit dark? And then it just sort of gets mm. funnier and funnier and funnier as you watch it. And I think as you tune into her humour, maybe, and just really make yeah. me laugh.
1: It's so lovely. And I'm really excited because they're doing a second series. Mm. I think in January, I read January. I don't know if that's for filming or for release, probably filming. And I'm really excited because I didn't talk about this when we mentioned it last week, but I also love the character that Tobias Menzies plays, the dad. <gasps> oh. I just think it's such a thoughtful performance and I love their relationship and I'm really excited for the second series, basically because of those two, because I really want to see that that develop.
0: Yeah, he's such a good actor. I think he's really good at touching on nuance and that character does so little, but does so much through just like that nuance of the sort of certain look or a certain way of holding himself he's just he's really good at the minute inferences I think
1: yeah totally I've only actually seen him in that and as Prince Philip in The Crown which he's fantastic as Um, so I've not really seen him in much else but I agree I (laughs) I love him in that it's it's brilliant
0: well the only other thing I've seen him in is (laughs) my total guilty pleasure go Um. on (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is outlander which i just totally fell in love with i think last year and he plays the husband of the protagonist frank it's about a woman who she starts in sort of 1940s 50s england and then goes back through these um, magic stones to 1780s i think scotland And so her husband is played by Tobias Menzies. And then when she goes through the stones, his ancestor, a sort of nefarious character called Black Jack Randall, is played by Tobias Menzies. And so he plays these two characters that are basically the same, but he plays them so differently. Mm. It's really interesting. I've heard lots about that, about Atlander, and I I haven't
1: even seen a trailer or an advert or anything for it. So I've got no, apart from what you've just said, I had no context of it, but I've heard really good things. Apparently
0: it's a big hit. Well, I love it. To give it some more context, she goes through these magic stones and meets this sexy Scottish man called Jamie Fraser. And they have this astonishing, vibrant lover, fair. She uses her medical knowledge to combat the ills of the age and they go on these extraordinary fun adventures saving the Scottish people from the Sassnacht, the English people and then going on adventures to France and it, it kind of gets more and more unbelievable as the show goes on probably a defining feature of the show is this sort of honesty and integrity of Jimmy Fraser as he combats all these mm. villains and it's just a really fun show having said that it does use sexual violence as a bit of a crutch for the storyline which is can be a bit uncomfortable oh okay the books definitely play on the sort of unhealthy side of that I don't know it's not necessarily something that I would ballpark say that everyone's gonna love it I think yeah I think they handle it sensitively enough but there's just that there is a lot of, of sexual violence in, in, in the show and in the book Mm that's often a lot easier to handle
1: in a book than actually on a screen isn't it
0: again i don't think the book necessarily it sort of almost does a thing where it like slightly fetishizes violence and sex and Uh, sort of in a consensual way but there's elements of it that aren't and are a bit uncomfortable Mm. and so like i fell in love with the characters and the setting and and the sexy men in kilts and sort of read it it's like it's like three feet worth of books it's it's a huge series and an excellent series and it's got a massive fan base in fact it does actually have the best fan base on facebook if you're ever interested in finding out what your mum's into uh not your mum specifically just mums in general it's just got the best fan base just find the outlander fan groups on facebook it's just the best thing in the world (laughs) well i've been working my way slowly through another tv show which again might be i feel like maybe this episode's quite revealing of my um institutionalized desire to watch fantasy genre films (laughs) i've been watching his dark materials the bbc version oh
1: fab did you watch it I haven't, but I'm a big fan of the books and Sam's watched the first series. Yeah. Cruelly, without me, we were like, that looks How good, we should watch he? that. And then, I know, he's, he sneakily went off and watched the first series. And so, <laughs> missed my chance.
0: So, it's one I want to go back and watch, but uh, yeah, tell me about yeah, it. Yeah, no, I was, I was really dubious. I was really careful because I, I love... I love the books with a mm. unending passion and I was really nervous about watching I remember I watched the Golden Compass when I was quite young I think I don't know when it came out and
1: oh I don't know when it came out but were you like me were you one of the many 10 year old girls Across the UK Who went to the open auditions To play Lyra No I didn't <laughs> No I didn't But if I'd known I would have So many people I know That my age did that I thought I was really unique Like oh I went to the auditions For that Well yes so did the entire country <laughs> It was one of those Classic like X Factor style Literally queuing for about seven hours oh, wow. and then we went into a room and yeah. they just sort of
0: pick a few of you who look vaguely correct and then that's it you go home it was great well I suppose they I don't know enough about child acting but there mustn't be the same sort of bankers actors as they as you have when you're a casting director casting adults
1: it's a bit weird I think they're probably I think there is I know lots of agencies have got really
0: you know like really extensive books for for
1: children mm. but I think they like to sometimes I think it's a bit of a publicity stunt as well they like to be like who's like you know mm. which New, fresh-faced, nobody-knows-them-yet are we going to discover for this new film.
0: Yes, okay. so, Yeah,
1: they kind of like... I think they did it with the Star Wars one recently, didn't they? They like to do the whole, it could
0: be you, <laughs> to get the hype up. Well, it worked. I thought it could be me, but sadly, it oh, was not. <laughs> well, I was just about to hate on the film, so perhaps glad okay. glad it wasn't. But It's not me. Yeah, yeah I'm glad I'm not critiquing your work. <laughs> I didn't love The Golden Compass, and I found that sort of strangely dream-shattering as a child. Mm. But this show... Oh, it's so good. I'm really enjoying it. I don't know whether I should, should we describe the plot or is that too facetious? I think
1: maybe just give a little overview. Some people might not have delved in.
0: Yeah, it's this world that's created sort of on our world, but there's multiple different worlds that exist at the same timeline. It's focused around the protagonist is Lyra, and she grew up in a Victorian-esque Oxford. And the main differences between our Oxford and this Oxford is that everyone has these demons, which are sort of an essence of their soul that is expressed in the form of different animals. And they become fixed when you're an adult and they shapeshift as a child, depending on your sort of emotions. And they're meant to express sort of the truest sense of yourself. And she is playing in Oxford with her best friend and is living this really sort of free life between the scholars of Jordan College and the sort of street life on the roofs and mud fights. And her friend goes missing. And it turns out that children are going missing all over the city and there's this anonymous group called the Gobblers that, well not anonymous if I just gave it a name, there's this <laughs> group called the Gobblers that that come to be, it's suggested that the Gobblers are taking the children and it's suggested that perhaps they are part of this larger thing called the Magisterium which is this huge sort of religious-esque organisation that's trying to sort of subdue a lot of free thinking in the world and... They go on this huge journey north to go rescue the children and go fight the gobblers. And it's just this marvellous sort of magical fantasy world with these huge kind of overarching themes of Christianity and sin. And it's just like the books are fantastic. And this TV series, sorry, that was meant to be a very short synopsis, (laughs) but I just got carried away. (laughs) And they really dive into the darknesses that are in the book. But I think maybe again, because as you're reading it, the darknesses seem less pronounced. Announced, but they've made it really sort of gritty, but in quite a kind of luxurious way. Like the details on the zeppelins or the lithiometer are, are really beautifully done. And they've like made these extraordinary animations of all the demons. And yeah, just I, I watched the episode with Billy Costa and the fish. I don't know if you remember that moment in the Northern Nights. Mm, I don't specifically know. It's been a while. It's been oh, okay. a while. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, I just particularly remember crying on the school bus reading that chapter Mm. to the ridicule of my peers but just being so heartbroken I won't I won't spoil what exactly happens but yeah just totally heartbroken by that and they reworked that in a really beautiful way in the yeah and they've taken some creative liberties like that the reworking of that scene or they've brought a lot of the second book which I think is the subtle knife alongside the first book which I imagine is so Will and Lyra's timelines meet up Later down the line But I think that's going to work really well And I'm really excited to see what happens Yeah, I'm really enjoying it
1: It's got such a great cast as well, hasn't it? I've, oh my um, god Lin-Manuel Miranda and Ruth Wilson I just, I love them yeah. both For the different things they've done And I can imagine they bring those characters It's, it's so special when a series especially a book series is brought to life in a way that you can enjoy so wholeheartedly and like you said about things that you like the film version that you didn't enjoy it's such a knife edge balance and when it's done the way Mm. the way your brain envisions it It's just, oh, it's so lovely.
0: I think maybe it just didn't have the space to explore. But because this is, again, they're bringing in parts of the second book, but we're still not at the end of the first book. And it's, I'm five episodes in, each episode is an hour long. So it's, they've given a lot of time to explore. They've given about as much time as I think the book allows to explore each chapter, which I think is really necessary because it is such a full throttle world that's got such a deep rooted sort of histories and and it all kind of fits together in this really interesting way mm. they've created a world it's world building um, and I think it's really beautifully done well oh, I'll have to go and watch it I'll have
1: to Go back and start start it from the first series And yeah, I look forward to it
0: I've been eking it out one episode every Mm. evening You just get to enjoy it properly, don't you? When you give something enough space
1: Yeah, and I think that's quite rare With our watching habits Mm. these days Everything's so instant And series are released all at once Which is so great when it's, you know And it's a page turner of a a watch And you're desperate to find out what's next But there is something really kind of old school And I don't know, the routine of one episode And really appreciating it for what it is Is Very novel these days, which is kind of weird.
0: It reminds me of Game of Thrones in that sort of I I would watch yes. that on a very regular basis every. I think that's the only th- show I've ever watched as it came out and sort of really enjoyed that balance of sort of fantasy and grittiness and at the beginning at least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've actually
1: started watching The Undoing, which is Sky or hate. I think it's HBO and it's on Sky mm. and it's a brilliant drama that stars Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman so that was oh. instantly like yeah have you have you seen you might have seen it advertised or heard about it yeah something
0: yummy sounding in that
1: <laughs> yeah it was on my list to talk mm. about next week because I've only watched two or three episodes and that's one that is yeah. coming out week by week and it's it was really interesting because when we when we came to it there was already three out so we watched two in one night I think and then and the kind of the sort of catalyst for the story happens at the end of the first episode. And it's, oh. it's kind of like obvious because of yeah. how the show is built that something dramatic is going to happen that starts off this story. And so we would just went from that seeing as the next one was there, we're like, we have to watch the next one. And then the next few nights later to watch the third one. Mm. And then because it's week by week, it was then seemingly ages to the next one. And I almost forgot about it, which is really weird because it's such a gripping story. But I think because we're not used to having to wait for things... It just sort of fell out of my brain for a while. So I'm really excited to kind of now go back and watch the next few and then watch it week by week and tell you all about it because it's really good so far. Yeah, please do. I can't wait. But what I have watched recently, I actually watched this last night um, Mm. and sent you many an excited text because I was like, (laughs) I can't wait to talk about this. I watched this incredible documentary on Netflix called Rising Phoenix. Mm. And I think it's actually it only came out this year, which is quite rare for me usually I find a documentary that I love and I'm like this is amazing and I tell everyone about it and they're like yeah that came out like two years ago (laughs) Um, but it came out in the summer it's directed by Ian Burnett and Peter Atedgi, and it's oh it's a phenomenal watch it's basically a documentary about the Paralympic Games and it tracks nine Paralympic athletes and their journeys and it also explores the Paralympics as a whole and its history its origins its progression and it was honestly one of the best documentaries I've seen in a really long time it just it ignited such a fire in my belly mm. but it also really blew me away with the the visuals and the cinematography and the the way it was shot there was just and the sound as well it was it was like the whole package for me so yeah, it's, it's all about the Paralympics and there's so many different aspects. I'll just tell you about a few of the bits that I loved. So we hear a lot about the man who started the Paralympic Games, which is something I knew shamefully little about. He was called Sir Ludwig Gutmann and he was a German-born British neurologist. And he established the Paralympics at Stoke Mandeville Hospital where he was kind of tasked with setting up a spinal a spinal unit hospital treating mm. disabled patients people with spinal injuries or amputees coming back from World War 2 and he brought loads of these really new techniques and compassion with him to the to the sector of medicine where Perhaps patients at that time, I think, were very easily dismissed. Yeah. Um, and he brought a lot of care and consideration on, on a personal level to all of his patients. And he invented the technique of turning patients in their beds every two hours to prevent mm-hmm. and reduce bedsores yeah. and therefore death from infection. And that was, you know, there was a section in the documentary where they sort of showed some old footage of of people being brought back of people being brought back on stretchers, and the kind of voiceover was explaining that ugh, it was. They were all but sort of left to die. These people that came back from the war with such horrific spinal injuries Mm. were kind of reduced to nothing. They were put in a hospital, ultimately died from infection six months later. And so he brought this technique about of of turning them in their beds every two hours. And he was there. He was living at the hospital. So he was the one always doing it as well with all the Mm. staff. He's just the most amazing man. Um, And we hear from his, his daughter, who's now quite elderly in the documentary and is so moving mm. anyway so he saw the power of sport within this community of patients he was working with and the importance in their rehabilitation but also the joy and the way it brings people together and the way people approach it in different ways because of their disabilities. Yeah, so he held a sporting competition with all these different categories, all these different events at the Stoke Mandeville Hospital in mm. 1948. And he, he did it. He ran the, the event the same day that the Olympics opened in London. Mm. And it was just their hospital patients, but the footage from it is incredible. It's so amazing. It's almost as impressive as, you know, what you see at the Paralympics now. It's not like the ability has increased over time. They, I think the, the people with these spinal injuries were doing as incredible things back then as they mm. are now and it was amazing to see that a lot of that is because he gave them a chance basically Mm. Um, and it grew and grew from there and within sort of five years hundreds over a hundred countries were coming to what they called the stoke Mandeville games mm. <laughs> and competing and they eventually became the paralympic games and something that ludwig Gutmann's daughter says in the documentary was that a lot of people thought or still think that paralympics is titled in that way because it was to do with people who were paralyzed the para mm. was because of that but it was actually because it was the the meaning of the words was parallel to the olympics Yes. And that's why it's the Paralympics. And I never knew that. And I just thought that was... It just says a lot about him and what he was created and his ethos. And obviously it's grown and grown since then. So we hear a lot about him and that was such a highlight for me. And we also then follow, I think it's nine incredible athletes and their stories through the documentary. Mm. And they're kind of woven, woven through. We come back to different parts of their stories at different time, And one in particular that completely blew me away was the story of Jean Baptiste Allais, who what who's had the most he had the most traumatic childhood. He grew up in the Burundi conflict in the early nineties, um, in the Civil War, and he was attacked with a machete and lost his leg, as well as sustaining other serious injuries, um, when he was just three, and in the same instant he saw his mother killed in front of him. So the most traumatic start in life and then he was in an orphanage and eventually adopted by a French family and he go, he went on to become an incredible long jumper and he speaks about sort of why he chose the long jump, why that was his sport and he, he says how he feels like he's, he's fleeing from something and the, the act of the run and the jump is, is mm. really symbolic of him fleeing from his past and the actual action of the run-in and taking off and flying and then landing or falling, however you see it, and standing again, and how much that represents him, you know, literally running, flying, falling, getting up again, doing doing it again, all the, the challenges he's faced in his life. And I just think the poetry of his story and the way he spoke about it and the way they shot this was so beautiful and so powerful. As he describes that feeling of, you know, of of fleeing and of flying. So there's this amazing slow motion shot as he was approaching the long jump of him running and taking off and then landing in the sand pit. And his blade sort of scoops the sand as he lands and it, all the sand, you know, as someone would when they land in the sand pit, there's just a big cloud of sound that goes up, isn't Mm. there? But because of his blade, it sort of whips it round and it swirls towards the camera in this slow motion. Really, it really fills the screen. It's almost like a kind of whole swirl encompassing you. Mm. And it, all the while, while he's talking about how, the what the long jump means to him. And it's just so powerful. And I think the whole documentary is, is really taken to the next level because of its design and its sound and its cinematography. And another example of that is an athlete, Bebe Vio, who is a, an Italian fencer. And she talks about how she feels like she's in another world when she puts her fencing mask on. And as she's describing this, there's a shot of her putting her, her mask on in slow motion and this beautiful Italian operatic music sort of swells as she puts her mask on and it just pierces you and it's such a shift from the soundscape we've had so far and it just takes mm. you into this other world, which is, you know, her world when she's fencing. And it's just so artistically done. You know, this documentary would be impressive and empowering enough because of the content, but the way it's it's produced is just takes it to that extra level it was really special and they also have this kind of visual motif running through it running through all the transitions between the stories and then going back to the history and things like that and they they have these shots of um, statues and busts of, of Paralympic athletes that we're talking about in the documentary but we see them kind of close up never the full picture all sort of sections of them as we move between the stories and it, it very much feels like it's based on those kind of Greek statues Mm. of of athletes and then it's just used very cleverly near the end of the documentary we hear more about the struggles the Paralympics faced in Rio with the organization and the finances and so then we start to see these sort of cracks and these crumbles appear on Mm. the statues and it's just visually it's so powerful and I just wanted to share there's two quotes from Philip Craven who's one of three of the people who are either president or members of the International Paralympic Committee. And he says, "Olympics is where heroes are created. The Paralympics is where the heroes come." Mm. Which I was like, "That's just, oh, yeah." It's it's just, and I I love the shift, you know, and and you see it in the documentary about the how the Paralympics has grown and the public's you know involvement and I think how we've been brought on board really and and purely through exposure and the brilliant job the Paralympic committees and the athletes have done. And I now find the Paralympics far more impressive and amazing to watch than the Olympics. Actually, that was a quote from, that was a stat from, I think, Rio, was that there was more tickets bought, more people in in the stadiums to watch the Paralympics than the Olympics. And the final quote that Philip Craven says was, that was also another thing to mention, is that the people on the committee were all either ex-par- ex-Paralympic athletes themselves, Mm. Um, Which is so important and actually sadly I think quite rare still that the people on the deciding bodies for these things often don't have the direct experience of of what they're doing. But this is not that at all. They were really, they've been there, done that and now they're paving the way for the next generation. And he said, don't hold me back because I won't allow it. Give us a chance and we'll show you what we can do. And if you don't, we'll make our own chances. Mm. And I just loved that. I just thought he was, the characters you meet in this in this documentary as well as what they've done and their stories which are you know staggering and impressive by themselves the people are just fantastic and they bring the stories to life their their brilliant personalities just shine through and it's oh i could harp on and on but it's a brilliant watch and i really recommend it for the kind of artistry as well as the
0: content yeah that sounds fantastic gosh yeah i've never really watched the olympics or the paralympics but i'm i'm tempted to give it a try now
1: mm, it got me so fired up with um i think it was released obviously this summer meant to be kind of the the preamble to mm. the, the paralympics this year but it did just make me it's lovely watching something like that knowing you don't have to wait four years like i can't wait for tokyo next year i
0: think it's going to just be oh incredible so the next olympic and paralympics is, is next year
1: Next year, yeah. So it's meant to be... 2016 Rio was the last one, so it's meant
0: to be this year, and obviously everything got mm. delayed this year, pushed to next year. Um, Gosh, that must be really difficult if you're building a training regime towards... You presumably you spend a whole four years building yeah. up a training regime for that final moment, so that yeah. weirdly having another year must actually... Strangely, put a spanner in the works of that training regime. I wonder.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I also imagine there's probably some athletes who have done, uh, maybe near the end of their career, who wanted to sort of maybe retire after to Tokyo. You know, that's a whole other year on your your body at that high level. Mm. You know, that might really scupper things.
0: But fingers crossed, it's not ruined too many plans, and I'm sure it'll be a, g- a great games next year. Yes, undoubtedly. God, I can't wait to watch that. That's going to be really exciting. Then, I've been reading. It's only a little book, um but I think the contents totally outweigh the length of it. It's been one of those books that's <laughs> been quite sticky, I suppose. I feel like i've mm. I've sort of landed in a pile of treacle and I've been sort of wading through it and then having to kind of wade back a bit
1: mm-hmm.
0: Zadie Smith's Intimations and it's six essays. Oh,
1: I've been really wanting to read this. I'm so pleased you have.
0: Yeah, I think they recommended it on the high Low, which I would also want to talk about later in this podcast. Yeah. But I'll talk about that later. Yeah, so this was the book that my friend sent me, and it was just I've only read her fiction, I've not read any of her essays before. But she's so Mm. just razor sharp in the way that Mm. she delivers her opinions about the world and about America and the UK and and about writers and artists and it's just it's really quite unnerving how precise and eagle-eyed she is on the, on the nuances of of life yeah so she's writing they sort of during covid essays I guess but they're sort of almost short stories they're they're kind of parables I think rather than essays they're, they've got a fictional glaze to the mm. there's a sort of lyricism to the essay which makes them I think because there's, there's that, that extreme precision but in a sort of there's an abstraction I would say that you don't necessarily find in essays often so she's so she writes these six essays and I'm going to talk about the one that really floored me it's mm. <laughs> I've read it now I think three times it's not very long but it's just I keep on coming back to it and and sort of deliberating again and I, I think why I found it hard to collect my thoughts around this piece is because she writes in a very captivating, compelling and and decisive way that makes you urgently want to agree with her. And I'm not necessarily sure that she is right, but she definitely gets you thinking about a topic. And I'm not totally sure where I place my opinion in regards to this, this essay. So she's talking about how artists do time, I guess, and how, how that's, been thrown into very sharp relief now that everyone is essentially doing time or filling time in the same way. Artists usually are given an expanse of time and we decide where to put the boundaries. We or or the art decides where to put the boundaries, where to divide the time and how to divide the time. And normally people with nine to five jobs have that decision taken away from them because their time is is their company's time and they their time is divided up as the company says and she's mm. talking about that disarming feeling that i think i definitely experienced at the beginning of lockdown of knowing that the way that i spend time which i think is quite unusual is how everyone's spending time where they where your time is given to you and you decide what you want to do with it and what you want to achieve with that time and although there are still the sort of external pressures of you know what you need to get done in terms of your company or in terms of what you want to get done for yourself it's much more abstract and it and it comes down to this idea of that life is simply a filling of time and it's quite arbitrary in that in that regard she talks about the writer writing a novel and someone else creating banana bread and how (laughs) a lot of it comes down to where you apply your own meaning. Because the banana bread and the novel are the same. They're just things that you have carved out of time. Mm. There's no inherent meaning in anything like the banana bread or the novel. They're something that we use to describe meaning, I guess. That that becomes a productive thing to have done, or an important thing to to have done, or something that denotes something else, and it's just I've I think particularly because I've spent this last week alone in a new town where I am <laughs> totally alone, that I've really been diving deep into the understanding what gives me meaning in my life, but also what I give meaning. That wow, yeah. I think because I've, I'm have i also being made redundant at the end of this week for real. <laughs> mm. And I've I've therefore like stepped back slightly from a lot of my work and I've been really just looking at the way I do time. I'm totally fascinated by the way in which actually something as simple as going for a swim or taking a walk can be as meaningful as creating a project. I'm strangely equally as proud of having been for a swim in the sea every morning as I am of other things that i've created anyway this is a very <laughs> long ramble but i just i just was really struck by the idea of life is essentially time and we just carve things out of time
1: yeah i think that the word carve there really mm. gets me i think it's a really brilliant way of describing exactly what you've explained and i think that's why Zadie Smith is so fantastic and so universally loved because she's so pithy with how she how she talks about mm. different topics, and time, you know that's, that's such a huge thing. Like you said, when you start picking and unraveling, it it's it's so monumental. And I think thinking about carving things out of it is such a tangible way of looking at it. And I, I love that. comparison to writing a novel and making banana bread and it's it's our worth that we put on time that i think distinguishes it between activities isn't it you know the the laudits and the praise that come with i wrote a novel versus i made banana bread and it's the act of doing isn't that different like you said it's the what we Mm. place on it afterwards
0: yeah and that nothing has more or less meaning than anything else but as a society we've decided to give certain things more meaning or less meaning, but actually that ultimately mm. the person in control of how we give and receive meaning is is yourself. And that you could decide that actually making banana bread is as meaningful to you as writing a novel or something else mm. considered more profound. Really kind of honed in for me, I think, on that. Yeah. That productivity that we've ascribed as the most important defining feature of our lives isn't and i i'm allowed to define yes yeah my meaning and worth however i want within this world that you know has released me from <laughs> the structure of any job and i feel very free from other people's judgments right now which is st- strange <laughs> oh, <that's so> nice. <laughs> well yeah it's nice but I think a lot of my judgments are made up from other people's judgments so it's funny just remembering how much of it is actually down to me to decide mm,
1: yeah that's so that's so well put and are they how long are the essays are they quite short there's how many
0: is that are there so there's six there's the first four I think are really really had a really Rolly um had a really profound (laughs) effect on me and then the last two are slightly more sort of like almost short stories about I think Zadie's interactions with during Covid with people around her um but really something that you have to keep on kind of running over and over in your mind Mm. yeah (laughs)
1: yeah I heard her talking about it on um The Adam Buxton podcast Which I promise I'm not on commission To talk about I just really like it (laughs) Yeah I mentioned it In like every episode Um, She's been on it twice But she was on it More recently Maybe a month or so ago
0: such a good speaker isn't she
1: yeah yeah around the probably the release of that book i'd like to read the book and then go back and listen to her speak speak about it again because it was really interesting hearing her talk about the process of writing them in lockdown
0: yes interesting i'd love to hear that actually that'd be maybe we come back to it you've read the book and i'll have listened to the podcast (laughs) yeah come back to it again (laughs) perfect and the high low (laughs) the high lows ended (sighs) Sigh, born heartbreak. <laughs> so we sort of semi created this in h- h- do you say homage? Yes, in it's mm, about to say never, in yeah, in a- homage. <laughs> we sort of created this podcast in homage to the high low. Oh gosh, my <laughs> sorry, Bruce just brought me a carbonara. Oh nice. <laughs> <laughs> a Carbonara <laughs> Unexpected.
1: I'm not gonna say like a cup of tea. <laughs>
0: yeah i can't get of an pop that do. up there so it can tantalize me <laughs> yeah i didn't necessarily have anything to say other than just how amazing that podcast has been and how beautiful and how much i've loved every episode yeah and i'm devastated that it's ending but i'm hoping that dolly and pandora go on to do beautiful other things with their lives that
1: yeah fill
0: the place of the podcast
1: (laughs) i think that i think their partnership is so much of why that podcast is brilliant they bring they're so similar and then bring such different levels to it i love it and i think they are the perfect sort of tonic to each other Mm. and and yeah like just similar to you and I i just think i'll really miss it it's my um it's my staple podcast of the week you know i dip in and out of other ones that's probably the only podcast that i i Subscribe to it in that I listen every week as soon as it comes out almost mm. and then kind of taken t- take what I please from other ones and it's just yeah it's such a nice all-rounder it's got such a good balance I love their author specials they make me laugh it's yeah it's really really joyous
0: oh I'm just I don't know what I'm gonna be <laughs> it sounds very very melodramatic but yeah I haven't as you said, I haven't got any other podcasts that I listen to as religiously. Yeah. I don't know what's, what I'm going to do with my time. <laughs> <laughs> How will I fill my Wednesday mornings? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> they just give such good recommendations as well. I don't think I've ever taken a book recommendation and i've then not gone on to rave about it to someone else Mm. which is really nice because also lazily it's really lovely having that as a a format someone that can just if you're a bit stuck as to what to watch or read you can just dip into it and know that you'll come away with some great recommendations yeah so gonna have to be a bit more creative but hey it's a good challenge (laughs) (laughs) speaking of sort of reading and trying different things yes i read a play this week which i haven't done in ages
0: I haven't read a play in forever. I
1: go through real phases of... of oh, I love reading plays. They're so easy to read, I think. That's such a bonus. It's like when you're reading a book that you're really into, but there's massive te- you know chunks of description, and you're just, your eyes just want to race ahead to the next bit of speech so you can figure out how the story's moving. And that's what I think's great about a play. You just you get all the good stuff, and it gets straight to it. Though, of course, at the same time, I felt a bit bittersweet about reading plays at the moment because... It's just mm. a big chasm in my life, not having theatre. But I decided, you know, let's go back to reading some plays. And I read a play called Skinner Cat by mm. Isley Lynn. And it was great. It was really great. It really quite short, really easy read. Definitely a, a play that as I was reading, I was going, oh, this would be so good, like physically and on stage. I can just imagine. And it, it did brilliantly. I think it was, um, I think it premiered at the Vault Festival. Um, have you ever been to the Vault Festival?
0: Mm, sorry i'm eating carbonara (laughs) you're eating the carbonara
1: i mean if you hadn't i would be blown away by your (laughs) self-control.
0: i was like oh maybe i can like sneakily munch this away from the microphone oh look, rihanna's off on one let's quickly eat (laughs) carbonara keep on talking (laughs) um no i haven't been to the vault festival but rufus has designed the set for a, a circus show that happened at the vault festival ah cool but yes, no, I haven't actually been there myself, strangely enough.
1: Well, I've only been once or twice um, since I've lived in London. But basically, the Vault Festival is a theatre festival that happens at Waterloo Vaults. And it's amazing because you've got all these sort of, well, vaults, essentially, little theatre pop-up spaces. And it's a great breeding ground for new work. And there's always excellent new plays. I, I have, For the last two years, I've bought the... Um, I don't know what it's called. I'm looking at my bookshelf. I can't see it. I think it's just... A, they, they choose eight of the plays to sort of feature and publish them in a vault kind mm. of anthology from that year and I've bought the last few and they're always just such great reads but anyway this play I think started there and then transferred to the bunker and it's done brilliantly and it I can see why so it's basically a play which in the writer's own words is unashamedly autobiographical and sort of tracks her journey with her sexual experiences from the age of nine first getting her period on holiday all the way through her teenage well a little bit through her teenage years and then young adult life and she describes in the notes before the text she says in a way this play is the missing part of the film that i wish i'd seen when i was 16 almost a decade later i figured if we still weren't talking about how uneasy sex could be for some people a surprising mm. number in fact then i probably should and The foreword from her is great. It goes on to explain a lot more about kind of the truth of her journey and how this play began. But the main character, Alana, has vaginismus, which is Mm. a psychosexual problem when the muscles in the walls of the vagina spasm uncontrollably and cause a lot of pain. And Mm. she doesn't realise she has this for, like, a good section of the play. And so a good section of her sort of growing up experiences and her sexual journey. She just thinks that there's something really wrong with her. And, Mm. you know, she can't use tampons or have vaginal sex. And she's just convinced that she is the problem. And she's really apologetic for it. And, you know, it's causing her all this anxiety. And we see her and her male partners throughout the years of battle with this and the journey that she goes on with it and it's, it's mm. really tough and quite lonely there's a really, mo- but it's also really really funny, I, I always do this, I really focus on the downside <laughs> and forget to tell you this essentially on the surface it's a brilliant comedic play um, mm. and there's a really moving scene when she finally has an appointment and goes to see a doctor and there's GP who is just so caring and treats her with so much compassion and reassurance and and Alana says that there's no one else has spoken to her like that, and she and that's when she finds out that it's a condition, it's not her, mm. and that she, she she said there's this lovely line I'm paraphrasing where she says that she wishes she could hug this doctor, even if that's not appropriate because she just feels in that moment like that doctor was mm. a mum to her and someone was looking after her. It was a really lovely read. I'm sure it was an even better watch and experience as a play. It's awkward and it's vivid and quite confronting. But it's only confronting, I think, because of how we're used to sex being portrayed in films and TV, which is Mm. obviously the reason that she wrote the play. And I think a lot of what happens in the play is probably not that confronting for our actual real personal experiences and memories we just don't ever hear or talk about them in terms of film and tv you never see the, the weird bits and the hard bits and the <laughs> fi- figuring it out bits you just see the before the exciting middle and then maybe the end you know you don't see mm. everything and yeah so obviously she wrote this from a, from a place of personal experience and we all have those that that lack of knowing what it's really like because it's so distorted and romanticized on film and tv but then you take that up a notch and throw in vaginismus into the mix mm-hmm. and that's so isolating and stressful and and i yeah her notes at the beginning of the text as well they just really they're so articulate and i think you know that this play comes from a place of real struggle and eventually acceptance and eventually it's really amazing and she sort of realizes that her sex life is only there to satisfy her, not societal norms or a box ticking exercise of what it should and shouldn't do, which is where the title of Skinner Cat came from. Because I think it was that she says, mm. a partner's mother, an ex-partner's mother, when she was talking like about her struggles said, to her, well dear, there's more than one way to skin a cat. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's where it came from. I would have really loved to have seen it. I've watched it, I think it was 2018 it first was on or it toured and I've watched like a little trailer from their promo stuff about it and it looked like it was brilliantly presented really great movement great movement direction um, really nice multi-rolling there's the main character and then there's two other actors who play sort of all the male partners and her mum and the doctor and everyone else and it just looks brilliantly thoughtfully presented and really funny like the reviews are amazing they say it's just you go in there and at the start of the, theater, of the show you're kind of thinking okay so this is another sort of sexual coming of age story or you know teenage mm-hmm. difficulties but it just dodges that bullet and becomes something so much more revealing and you sort of everyone leaves feeling like we've had a real shared experience which is what theatre is brilliant for so that was yes. great and I really really it just really reminded me how lovely and accessible it is to read plays. Often they're really quite cheap to buy as well because they're short, small mm. books. And it's a great way to sort of, if you don't want to read a big old book, uh, I think reading plays, you get the, the essence of the story really kind of quickly and concisely. It's really nice to just read in an afternoon or something
0: like that. So yeah, loved that. It's just such a different spin on because it's essentially like watching a film or something, isn't it? But it it feels like that when you're reading it. Yeah. But but it's such a sort of nice spin Mm. on it. That sounds really interesting. Really
1: interesting. I've never read or... I think I'd heard of Vaginismus, but I'd never seen it presented in a story Mm. like that. And I think the... I haven't looked up the stats, but I know from her notes at the beginning, she says it's really, surprisingly really common, but it's just never spoken about. And I think it is because it's also a psychological element of it. I think it's also, i pretty sure it's it can be a condition that follows mm. sexual abuse or rape because of the psychological connection, basically. And therefore, I think there's probably still a, a large amount. And, and anything that's about, I think, female sex, there's just still a lot of stigma there. And it's not something that we're used to or very good at talking about. So I think it was a brilliant play that, like you said, it comes from the fact that, she spent ten years wondering mm. what was wrong with her, and then if people, people still weren't talking about it, let's write a play about it.
0: Gosh, and it's it's very in line with a lot of female health problems that often do get sort of sidelined, don't they? Have you mm. read the very revealing book um, *Invisible Woman*, which it has a chapter on a lot of female health issues and the way in which diagnosis is so hard to come by and often ignored and and dismissed as not important and here just take Mm. just take the pill um that'll sort it out (laughs) but yeah it's a really interesting book it's it's a discussion of the data biases between women and men and covers sort of medicine and and lots of other things like architecture and the various ways in which the world is essentially designed for men Yes and it talks about a lot about how a lot of research into a lot of illnesses and diseases are focused around men and there's there's comparisons between the amount of research that goes into solving erectile dysfunction versus things like um, endometriosis or vaginismus which is Mm. really interesting. I mean nothing that we don't already yeah. know but very interesting it's been critiqued a lot for its uh, lack of representation of fame bodies it's 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 mainly talking about white men and white women but right. the, in the introduction the author notes that that's because there is so little there's like a, a lack of data about white women but there's virtually no data on black and brown bodies in medicine and things like that. The only statistic they have Mm. is the one that gets brought up quite a lot, the one about childbirth. Yeah. Anyway, really interesting book. (laughs) Yeah, sounds it. No, I've not read it. I'll have to um, give that one a look. Yeah, I mean, it's really depressing (laughs) because there's nothing you don't already know. It's just this is the way in which women are ignored. This is the way in which women are ignored. This is the way in which black and brown women are ignored. This is the way in which white men are seen as the one and only. (laughs) yeah something to read alongside something lighter flicking and out Yeah, it's just sort of data points after data points after data points but really useful for kind of consolidating thoughts and looking at the the various type data types that definitely are out there. i did also read a very little short story by sylvia plath called oh no mary it's... Ventura and the ninth kingdom which is very sweet it's um this young girl that gets on this train and this train has sort of a suspicious outcome and it's sort of like a almost horror pseudo horror little book and it's just was just really fun to read it's fun to read the way in which her poetry is distilled into prose i think similar in to in the way in which the bell jar responds to her poetry but um really lovely to read Something with such a killer undertone, such an, an amazing sense of illusion and uneasiness happening, but just a really lovely tale. Hmm, that's so nice. I love the
1: sound of it dipping into like a little short story.
0: Yeah, I bought it shamefully um, <laughs> because I was so nearly over the delivery Number that I had to get to for this bookstore, and and <laughs> I had to spend like one pound fifty more. So I so I bought this little book, and it was actually, it's the tiniest book I can find. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and is absolutely charming, and just pushed me over that into free delivery. <laughs> excellent, that's what we need. But yeah, really lovely. Well, thank you for some amazing recommendations. I'm going to look forward to exploring all the things that you've told me about.
1: Ah, oh, excellent. And
0: see you next week.
1: Likewise. Bye. Thank you so much. See you soon.